Okay. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you. We're going to be ending up in Revelation chapter 5. So you've got a Bible. Go to Revelation chapter 5 now. We will eventually get to that. Um, before we do that, a couple of things just want to say is um, that card that Melanie mentioned, if you've got it, just grab hold of it for a minute and have a look at it. We, um, I, I've, I hadn't really fully appreciated this, but I was thinking the other day, praying, and God kind of reminded me um, that this next period as a church for like the next three months or so is our most intense period in the year, calendar year, of us being kind of out there in the community. Uh, I don't know if we'd kind of planned it like that. It was just a reflection of the weather turning. But actually, when you think about, when you look at some of the things that we're going to be involved with outside kind of this context, our sort of church gathering, there are a multitude of things we're going to be involved in and so many people we're going to affect. We've got Messi, Easter is on Good Friday, that was 100 tickets went in less than 24 hours as people booked in, it's all free but they just booked in. We've got people asking us now, do you have any spares, can we do any more, we've got to get the people in place to do that. You've got obviously our Easter Sunday, then beyond that we've got the tabletop games and the bear hunt and the fun run. The Boldfest and Sutton Games, so many things. And in the prayer meeting on Tuesday, in a couple of days' time, when we're going to pray, this is going to be our focus in what it means to be good to the community, to be blessing to the community, to be out there serving and loving and showing in a practical way that we're part of you, we love you, we're for you, Jesus loves you, we're behind you. And so if you're free to choose anything, please come pray with us. But I just want to have that in your minds that as we enter these warmer period, hopefully it does last. <laughs> this next few months, that we're going to be interacting with our community outside this building so much. It's going to be amazing, an opportunity just to show them we love them, Jesus loves them, and it's going to be a fantastic time. So just have that in your mind. It struck me this week. I thought I never really thought of it quite like that, but that's what's happening. And we're praying on Tuesday as part of the prayer meeting, praying particularly for good for our community and praying for some of these events and everything that's going on, and we'll be a great blessing to them, that we won't be a church that just takes or everything's about us, but actually we want to just be good to those around them because we love them and we're for them. All right, uh, this one, um, Lion and Lamb, uh, part two. Before we get into that, the weather's been good recently, and I don't know when you think about when the weather's good, you think about holidays and getting away and kind of going somewhere nice and it's sort of fun and being outside. And can we have the picture up? This is um, a holiday my wife and I took when we were, um, before we had kids, in the Lake District. Is anyone here like the Lake District? Beautiful part of our nation. We were up there, and it was an Easter time. So it was this time of year, and we had a breakaway, and we stayed in a cottage on a farm just outside, I think it was Lake Windermere, just at the sort of south end of Windermere, and it was just breathtaking beautiful. That is Melanie there enjoying it, and I'm obviously the one who's taking the photo. And it was a wonderful time. And one of the things that was nice about there, you could actually see it at the top. There is a, there is a, a sheep up there, very small. But one of the things that we had, because of where the cottage was on the farm, there were sheep and lambs like everywhere. One of the notes in the visitor's book, when you go in the cottage and you flick through the visitor's book, they said, do not leave your walking boots outside the sheep chew the laces. And we're like, what? And they literally, they could come right up to the door because of where it was. And they were everywhere and there were lambs frolicking and it was all very nice and idyllic. And we had a lovely break. And we spoke to the farmer and the farmer had a son who belt around on one of these quad bikes, kind of making sure everything was right, working on the farm. We were chatting to him one day and we just say, oh, it's beautiful weather here. We love it here. It's so, it's so wonderful. It's so warm. It's nice. And he said, it wasn't like this last year. And we said, what do you mean? He said, literally this day last year, 12 months before, 
there was about three foot of snow on the ground. The temperature was right down. The wind was howling. He said it was, it was terrible, the weather, because they were kind of on a high point above the lakes. And it was like, what do you mean? Because we're out there in this beautiful sunshine, like it's too warm. He said, no, it was so bad. And it was the kind of the season where the, the sheep were giving birth to the baby lambs. And he said, we, had to, we were out like for 24 hours solid because we had to be out with the sheep. Because if they gave birth to a lamb and the lamb didn't get on the mum within something like two minutes, it was some ridiculously short amount of time, the cold would kill them. It was literally that quick. He said, so we were out there constantly. It was a terrible time of year. We could have lost like the flock in the snow because when they were giving birth to the lambs, we had to get them on the mum, getting the milk, or they would just they would die. And I just like we were saying there in the sunshine, like my goodness, I didn't realise that, and it just struck me. Lambs, as much as they're nice and they like frolicking around, they're a bit rubbish, really, when it comes to creatures. They've got no natural defences. They are weak. They are vulnerable. They need the help. Even when they grow up, they're still a bit rubbish. They're not very good. Kind of, they can't defend themselves. They're dumb. They run away from the same dog they see every day. You know, it's just like, what are you? But when, in thinking about our series, last week we looked at Jesus as the lion. Now, instantly when you think of a lion, lions are amazing. Lions are mighty. Lions roar. Everyone's afraid of a lion. They're the kings. But lambs, they're a bit rubbish. They may be a bit cute, but they follow around. They've got, they're just... They're the total opposite. But what we've got in Christ, and we've been looking at this series, is actually Jesus is not just the lion. He's also the lamb. He's both of those things. And in this series, we looked at last week, Jesus was the lion. This week, we're looking at he's the lamb. When we come back next week for Easter Sunday, and we baptize and we celebrate the resurrection, we'll look at kind of how it all comes together as Jesus is the lion and the lamb. And so last week, just to remind us, we were in Revelation chapter 5. And there was this great heavenly vision that the Apostle John had. And there was a throne in heaven. And there was this this on the throne. And and there was um, God on the throne and he had the scroll. And what did the scroll represent? It represented the great plan of God. But there was no one worthy to open that scroll. No one worthy to execute this great sovereign plan of God to bring back mankind to himself. But they said, no, don't worry, there is one worthy. And who was it? It was the line of the tribe of Judah, this great majestic king of the root of David, it said, which means he was in the line of kings. But because he was the root of David, he pre-existed before him. This was God, fully God, fully man. This great one had come to execute God's plan. And what we're going to do now is look at carrying on with the next section of that um, chapter 5 in Revelation. A big idea of today is Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So can we have the the verse up, please? And I'm just going to read this to you. It says, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. All right, first thing we're going to look at today is the lamb, as the lamb. Now, if we're going to look at the lamb, first thing we need to understand is the history. Where has this come from in the Bible? Okay, because we're right at the end in Revelation. So where does it begin? Well, if we scroll back to right to the beginning, to Genesis 
And we have creation, God makes everything good, and then it, fall, it all goes wrong. The fall, Genesis chapter 3, so everything's gone wrong by this point. You get hints right in Genesis chapter 3 that one is coming to deal with the problem. One is coming to crush the serpent's head, it says. And so we've got these hints right at the beginning. Something's coming. We go forward a few chapters. We get Abraham. Abraham, God comes to him and basically said, I'm going to make a promise to you that your descendants are going to be like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore and the whole nations of the world are going to be blessed through you, through your offspring. And the laughable thing apart was Abraham was something like 80 odd when this happened and his wife was the same kind of age and she was old and never had kids. In fact, she said she was barren, she couldn't have kids. But he says, through your offspring, I'm going to bless the world. And you're like, well, that's a bit ridiculous. But he's God, and God spoke, and Abraham, it says, responded in faith. He believed God. Fast forward 10 years, a whole bunch of things go wrong, and he's still believing on this great promise. God, you're going to give me a son, you're going to give me an offspring. And he does. He's blessed with a child. And who's the child? The child is called Isaac, he is the child of promise. He's the one given to them that bear the promise that God gave to Abraham that through you all the nations are going to be blessed. And then we get that really kind of strange story where God says to uh, Abraham, right, giving you the son, isn't it going well? I need you now to go on a journey with the son and you're going to go and sacrifice on the mountain of the Lord. So Abraham goes and he takes the wood for the, the burnt offering and Isaac's like, well, where's the actual sacrifice? And Abraham knows that God has told him, well, actually, Isaac's going to be the sacrifice. So he says, don't worry, the Lord will provide. And so they get to that point on the mountain where actually they create the altar for the sacrifice. And God says to Abraham, you've got to sacrifice your son, the child of promise, the one through whom all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. And Abraham, by faith, believes that God can still fulfill his promise even though he's been asked to do this incredible thing. And then just as he's about to do it, as a man of faith, the, Lord, the angel of the Lord comes and says, Stop, and there was what caught in the thicket? A ram, a sheep. Oh, okay, we've got imaging. He said, actually, you know, that's going to replace the, the sun. Okay, so what they do is they sacrifice the ram. They sacrifice the sheep goes in place of the son. So the sheep dies and he, he becomes the burnt offering. We fast forward. Isaac has a son, Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. Um, they go down into Egypt. We looked at that with the life of Joseph. They're now in Egypt. They multiply into a great nation in Egypt. But the, uh, the rulership of Egypt changed. We have a new pharaoh. He doesn't think, remember Joseph and all the things that Joseph had done. And he takes the people of Israel at that time and he basically makes them work as slaves. Very bad. And so what happens? God raises up a deliverer. The deliverer is called Moses. And he says, you go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Moses obeys. He goes to Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no, I want them here for me. And then we get what we call the plagues of Egypt. And there are ten plagues. And God sends the plagues. It's basically a way of saying, let my people go. I'm serious. These are warnings. And there's all different kinds of them. And then you get to the final, tenth plague. The great plagues. Pharaoh said, no, I will not obey you, God. I will be stubborn. I will harden my heart. I will turn my back on you. And God says, I'm going to send the final one, the big one. I'm going to pass over Egypt and I will strike down the firstborn of every house. I will kill them all as a response of your disobedience to me. But he says to his people, the people of Israel, he says, you need to respond in faith this. What do you do? You need to take a lamb, a spotless lamb, an unblemished lamb. You are to kill that lamb. You are then to 
put the blood of the lamb over the lintel and the doorposts of your house. You then cook the lamb, eat that, becomes your Passover meal. And when I pass over Egypt, I will see the blood of the lamb on the doorposts and I will pass over that house knowing a sacrifice has already been made. Has already made. So the lamb takes the place of the death of the firstborn in the house. And God does that and the people of Egypt haven't responded in faith and they reap the consequences of their action. But the people of God are spared and we have the institution of something called the Passover which became the thing in Jewish culture for hundreds, hundreds, thousands of years where every, t- every year they would remember God's great deliverance what brought them out of slavery to Egypt into the, eventually the promised land. And that's what happened. And then when we get into the promised land, they've come out of Egypt having started this thing. God gives them the blueprint for the tabernacle, the great tent where his presence would dwell in his people. And what would happen in the tent every day? What would the priests have to do? They would have to bring sacrifice daily to atone for the sins of the people, for all the things they'd done wrong before a holy God. And this would continue all throughout their wilderness wanderings. Forty years, they come into the promised land. They take the promised land that God had promised way back to Abraham. The tabernacle's still there. The sacrifice is still there. And eventually, David um, becomes king and wants to build a temple, a permanent place in God's city, Jerusalem. So they build the temple. Because Solomon finishes it, David's heart, and then they have what they have in the temple. They have more and more and more sacrifices. It keeps going. The lamb keeps being sacrificed over and over again to bring people into right relationship with God because of their sin, because of their disobedience. And then we get the prophets start speaking after this. The prophets start speaking. We go to the book of Isaiah, and we get this classic passage in Isaiah 53. It says this, talking about Jesus. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent so he opened not his mouth and there's a great prophetic messianic prophecy there pointing forward to the one who would come and save his people the one that was hinted back in Genesis the one that that they've been looking for they've been designed for a deliverer who is better than Moses a greater promise, a greater sacrifice, a greater temple. All the stuff we looked through as we went through Hebrews. One is coming who is greater. And who is it pointing to? Jesus. Who is it pointing to? What happens when Jesus turns up on the screen? Do you remember what John the Baptist said about him? John chapter 1 verse 29. It says this. The next day John saw Jesus coming towards him and said what? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We have the lamb, the final lamb, the fulfillment of all that's gone before. All the stuff that we saw when we studied Hebrews, all the sacrifices, all that, that just could never fully atone for the problem of our rebellion before a holy God. And then finally one comes who is the lamb. He lives his perfect life. He demonstrates God's kingdom. He proclaims the message. And then when he gets to the end of his life, he gathers his closest followers together and they share a meal. Call it the Last Supper. And what what meal was that? It was the Passover. Going way back to Egypt when they had the first Passover, when there was a sacrifice. And Jesus shares this with his disciples. And he institutes something new, something different. He knows he's going to die on a cross in our place for our sin he is going to be that lamb that dies but he institutes something new he institutes says up after the meal he says 
He takes bread and he says, takes wine. He says, you do this in remembrance of me. And as the church that has gone on hundreds of years, thousands of years after that, we still do it in remembrance of him. We're going to do it at the end of this meeting. We're going to share bread and wine together to remember Christ. There's no longer the need for any sacrifice. No animal has to die now because we've had the one who has died in our place for our sins. What else does the passage say? Well, so there's the history, why this kind of lamb. But if you read the passage, it says something odd about the lamb. I don't know if you noticed it, we went through. It says, as though it had been slain. Some translations says, as though it has been slaughtered. This is no ordinary lamb. If something looking as though it's been slaughtered, actually then it's like quite clearly alive. This is a living lamb, yet it bears the scars of sacrifice. It bears the scars of being killed. But actually this lamb is alive. There's something interesting about this lamb. It's not an ordinary lamb that you might see in the field. There's something different. It's looking as though it had been slain. And then it goes on. If you read the passage, it has some really strange descriptions about this lamb. If you ever saw a lamb like this, you would run for the hills. It's a freaky looking thing. What's it got? Horns? How many? Seven. Eyes? Seven. Weird. And then, uh, then it's got seven spirits. It's just like, what is this lamb? This is a freaky animal. We saw last time, what does the seven refer to in apocalyptic literature that you find in Revelation, other places, Ezekiel, Daniel? Seven refers to is something that is divine. It's a divine number. So when we start hurling out sevens about something, this lamb is clearly divine. There's something God about this lamb. It's no ordinary lamb. This lamb is God in itself. And then it says something about it. It says it's got seven horns. What does the horn represent? The horn represents power and authority. Go through the Bible, you see it in Deuteronomy and Kings and in Psalms and Daniel, this, this image of if something has a horn, it has great power and great authority. If it's got seven, it has divine power and divine authority. So this lamb, looking like it's dead, actually has, is God and has divine power and divine authority. So it's got seven eyes. Well, what's the eyes about? Well, the eyes means it, what it, it can see. It's all seeing, it's all knowing. In fact, it's got seven. It means it has God-like powers to see and know everything. It can see the thoughts of our hearts. It can see every action, all the ones we think are done in secret. It knows everything and can see everything. It talks about the seven spirits. That's an allusion to actually it's in all places that are sent out into the world. If there's seven, it's everywhere at all times. So this lamb is all-seeing, all-knowing, all-present, everywhere. This is God himself, this lamb. It's no ordinary lamb. There is God himself on that throne. Then it says if we move on into verse 7, it talks about its fulfillment. So this lamb has come and it too is worthy to take the scroll. Now we looked at last week kind of what this scroll was about, this great plan of God. So the lion was worthy, but so is the lamb to take hold of this scroll and fulfill and execute the great sovereign plan of God in the universe. And then, and then there is a response, finally. We have the response. What is the response of the people? What is their response? The living creatures represent kind of the, the created order. You've got the elders that represent God's people. And it says there, they had taken the scroll of him. It says they fell down before the lamb. Now, I don't know how they fell down when they're holding things. Probably a bit messy. But this is um, prophetic literature. So sometimes we can't get too fallen down what it's saying. But they, they fell down. They worshipped before this God. 
They worshipped him. They had harps, which are signs of, of praise, music that they play. How you play a harp when you've got a bowl, doesn't matter. They are worshipping God. And the bowl, it says, held the prayers of the saints that had been calling out to God for his deliverance. And there they were. And it was like an incense. And there's an image in the tabernacle in the temple. They used to burn incense, sweet-smelling incense as part of the sacrifice and the offering. And actually, we don't do that anymore, but we have our prayers and our praise, which are that incense before God. So they bring to God worship. So what do we know about this lamb? We know that the Lion of Judah we saw last week, has fulfilled this plan. But he fulfilled it like a lamb. God came as a lion roaring, but he came as a lamb to die. And he came to damn, and he filled God's plan by coming and humbly and dying on a cross. And because he died, he now rules and reigns victorious, and he is alive forevermore. And we will celebrate that every week, but particularly next week is Easter Sunday, where we will really remember that truth. This is the one who's over everything. He's a lion and he's also the lamb. And he rules and reigns all over everything. It's wonderful. The apparent defeat of the cross, where he died humbly, meekly, beaten, rejected, abused, turned away from everyone. His friends turned away from him. The religious authorities who'd been waiting for him turned away from him. He died alone, rejected, meekly. But actually he rose gloriously from the grave and in response to that what's the next thing put the next bit of the um the uh the passage up verses 9 and 10 it says this and they sang a new song saying worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for god from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our god and they shall reign on earth forever they shall reign on earth forever so what do we see here? This, what we got here, is basically, is basically a commentary on what's just happened. They explain everything that's happened, and then we have the response of the people in that. What are they going to do? And so the first thing we see there is in the worship as a response. They worship, they worship because of the plan. They worship because of God's great, glorious, majestic, eternal plan, which was what? We said it was creation, fall, reconciliation, consummation last week. This wonderful plan causes them to worship because they've been caught up in it. They see it. They see how God's great mercy and grace has been pulled out on humanity. And he's set something in motion since from the beginning that will come day come to fulfillment. And the lion and the lamb is worthy to execute that, to open that scroll for us to become a part of that, for us to even see that and enjoy that. And from that we worship and that is worth celebrating. God's great plan to us. The next thing it says, there's a ransom there. It talks about us being ransomed, which means we've been bought back from slavery. Now, what does that mean? Well, the Bible says in Romans 6 that we are slaves to sin. We're slaves to sin. Well, what's that? Well, sin is, is our rebellion before God. It's falling short of God's perfect standard. It's all the things that we've done that are against him. The thing is ways we've rejected him, belittled him, thought we can do life ourselves. It's also all the things that we haven't done that we should have done. Sins of commission and sins of omission, they're often called. All this thing, everything in about us that is a rejection for God brings us into slavery to sin and we are bound there. The Bible says we are objects of God's wrath. We've been caught in that and we are just on a one-way ticket away from him and are under his judgment rightly for all the things we've done. But then it says actually there's been blood has been shed. Whose blood has been shed? 
Jesus. It says, by his, Jesus' blood, it sets us free. And this is a great story of the gospel. We've got the great plan of God which goes over, which was creation, full reconciliation, consummation. We looked at last time. But then actually there's a very personal level that we have to deal with on an individual. And that one is God, man, Christ response. So the question is, God created everything in the beginning. He is perfect. He is holy. He is good. And he, then we have man. We're created in his image, put in the garden, put in relationship with him. But what did we do? We rebelled. We rejected him. So we don't want anything to do with you, God. We don't want anything. We're not part, you're not part of us. We want, to, we want to be God. We want to be like you. We want to take over with you. That gets us into the problem of sins. We're rebels. We're under, under God's right judgment. Then we have Christ who comes as the perfect man and perfect God who can stand between us. He takes the punishment that we, we should have faced ourselves. He takes upon himself what we should have had. The death on the cross should have been ours. Separation from the Father should have been ours. We should have all taken that. We're all guilty. We don't, let, we don't even raise it up to our own standards, let alone God's standards of perfection. We fall short in every possible way. And that's where we are. And then you get the final one, response. What do you do with that? How are you going to respond to that? And response, the response to Jesus is binary. It's just one or zero. You pick it one way or the other, and there's no middle ground. You either respond to him in faith and trust and say, God, yes, I have sinned before you. Forgive me for my sins. I need to follow you. I repent. I turn away. I follow my way. I put my faith and trust in you, or you don't. It's as simple as that. And thinking about it is not accepting him. Just as bad as rejecting him. You're still on the wrong side. And there's a response that we need to make today. What are you going to do? You may have made that response many times in the past. said, I've done that kind of, I'll ask you again, do it again today. By responding in faith, we're to walk by faith, live by faith. If you've never made that response to Jesus, today's the day. Today's the day he's calling you out and saying, you need to do that for yourself. Because we stand under his, his judgment and the only way we can be brought out of that slavery is by the blood of Jesus, the lamb who died on the cross for us. And what to say the last thing, people. What did it say at the end of that verse? It says, um, you were slain, you were ransomed free for God for every tribe, language, people and nation and we become a kingdom of priests to our God. What does that mean? When we were born again, when we became Christians, when we joined God's family, we became something, part of a multinational, multi-ethnic tribe that spans the globe. It doesn't just span the globe, it spans the ages. And God's people are made up from every tribe and every nation and every people group and every language throughout history. And that's what we've come to be a part of, which means that we have no space to look down on anyone else. It doesn't matter you know, where they're from or how long they've been a believer or any, any other kind of you know, brackets we love to put people in. We're all part of God's people. And we've all been saved by one sacrifice. We've all been brought into one family. And we're now this kingdom of priests. Priests are no longer the elite class that you had to be born into and you had to kind of get into. It's all of us. We can all minister before God. We can all go to our Heavenly Father. You don't need someone special to do that. You can all pray, you can all worship. You can all give yourself to that without anybody else. That's all because of what Jesus' blood has done for us. We have direct access to God. So what does this mean to us as we finish? Three things I just want to push towards you before we go. First one, a thankful people. Christians, believers, should be the most thankful people on earth. Yes? We absolutely should be. We should not be thankful for the the kind of the temporary earthly things that we have in our life, which in our culture, Western culture, is very easy. 
You know, there's lots of things to be thankful for, relative peace and stable government and health care and food in the, you know, the shops and jobs, all these kind of things, they're good to be thankful for as well. But actually, we should be thankful for the big thing we're a part of. God's great story that we've been lifted out of, lifted out of our sin and rebellion and been plugged into this incredible, majestic plan of God that was from the beginning of time will go to the end of time that we are part of. What a privilege to be part of God's people, that kingdom of priests, the church, and to take part in that great message, to proclaim to the rest of creation the wonder and the grace of God that he died and rose again and we can know him and be with him forever. He was a lion of Judah who roars in power and authority, but he's also the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. And then we worship him and we love him. We should be a thankful people. And interestingly, how do they express their thankfulness in this passage? That's not a trick question. Seriously, how do they express it? Singing. Singing is a good way to express thankfulness. We're to be a singing people. The response of the people here is when they've heard it, they've seen it, what do they do? They sing. And singing, I don't know if you really thought about it, singing is huge in our culture. The X factor, which I detest in so many ways, is just one of many of those singing talent shows that have been on over the years. How far back do you go? Pop stars, Fame Academy... Pop stars, the rivals, the voice. There, there, there's there's oodles of these things. Apparently, Hex Factor at its height attracted 12 million viewers. There's only 60 in the country, and some of them are kids. 12 million people watch that. The music industry, apparently, in the UK in 2015 accounted for 4.1 billion pounds of revenue. That's a lot of money, isn't it? 4.1 billion pounds. In concerts in 2015, apparently 27.7 million people in the UK, it's nearly half, isn't it, went to concerts or music festivals. About, uh, it supports, the music industry directly supports over 120,000 jobs in the UK, it says. And that's kind of just the formal music industry. What about the more informal one? Go to nearly any sports ground on a weekend, particularly if your team is winning, and what do you hear? Singing. They love to sing. To raise, they want to be thankful. Come on, yeah, we're going to win. They sing. What happens usually before the big sporting events, when everyone gathers and there's a moment of silence, what happens? Someone sings the national anthem, usually. Even the FA Cup here, do they sing at the beginning? What do they sing at the beginning? Who knows? Trivia. Who knows what they sing at the beginning? Abide with me. Christian song, which is really bizarre, but they sing that usually before every FA Cup final. Even if like the rugby, what's the famous rugby song? Swing low. People sing at these things. What about when people are in the shower? What do they like to do? Hands up who's done that. The rest of you are liars and you'll repent at the end before we take the bread and the wine. People like to sing in the shower. What happens when some people usually have a few too many drinks? They like to sing. Karaoke suddenly becomes a really good idea. Do you know what? 
will go and do some care. They want to sing. It's part of who we are as a people. It's part of the way God's made us. It's part of the common grace that's given to all mankind, music and singing. But as God's people, we should be a singing people that sing about the wonder and the grace of God and his plan and what we've kind of been brought into. We love to sing in our household. We love our, our kids love to sing. Ash, particularly our youngest, he's five. It's like being in a musical every so often. He just burst into song. I mean, literally, for no reason. But he'll sing a song he's learned at church, one he's learned at school. He'll just sing something he's heard on the radio. He just, they just love to sing. And for us as God's people, we are to sing, and we are to sing and celebrate about how good he is. That's why on Sunday when we gather, one of the main features of what we do is singing. When we gather the prayer meeting on, Wednesday, on Tuesday, we will begin with Singing, getting our eyes on Jesus. In our life groups, we always have that bit at the end where we pray and we encourage to sing as well, just to be part of that thankfulness to God, to give praise to him and who he is, because that's what we're to do. We express our thanks through singing. It's why we invest as a church time, energy, and money in our team up here so that they, are, they have time to practice. They've got the right equipment, the right kit, so they can lead us in singing. It's why we put a countdown at the front of the meeting to say we're about to start so you can all get in here, grab your treat and get ready. So when it's time to go and it hits zero, what are we going to do as a church? We're going to sing together. There's no excuse to be anywhere else in this building when that hits zero that we are in here as a people ready together to be led by our musicians who have been practicing for hours and say let's worship God together. Let's sing Let's pour our hearts out in praise to him. It's why the, um, the worship team came and said, we want to do um, an album of the month. Just put it out there for you. So you've got stuff that they're listening to that you can listen to that fuels your worship, that you can sing. We have um, albums we put in the car that just are there. So when we're taking the kids to school or driving them around and you know, their hectic social life, you know, the music is there and they sing. And our kids have clocked onto certain ones. I want track four. On track six, okay, we listen to track four and track six again and again and again. But they love to sing, they love to, and they learn, and they learn to praise God through music. And we put it on more and more, and we encourage it with our kids at home. We are to be a singing people. If you haven't got music, you know, get some. This comes out, gets recommended, get behind it, sing. When you're alone in the car, no one cares. No one cares whatsoever. No one is interested in listening to you. It says in the Bible that we should make a joyful noise to the Lord, not necessarily a tuneful one. So for people like me, that's my verse. Because I know I'm not incredibly tuneful, but I can be joyful. We even had this debate on uh, Wednesday in our life group when we were going to have some singing. John was going to lead us in singing time. And there's a couple of people like, we're not very tuneful, so we'll kind of go over here, but we're going to sing. And we're just, you better play loud because we're going to give our thanks and praise to God. We need to be a sing, a singing people. We're going to sing at the end. Sing, be thankful. Songs full of grace, full of truth are wonderful ways to teach ourselves how to be thankful, how to praise God in those things. And the people in Revelation respond and sing, we're going to be a singing people. The next one, a model, a model. We are called to, uh, to suffer for Christ and endure as we did. If we, you look at the background of the book of Revelation, the church at the time were going through great persecution. That's the kind of the background. 
And so this great vision of God's victory is kind of spoken into that. God speaking to his church who was suffering at the time. And for us, the theme of the Bible, theme of the New Testament particularly, is we are to suffer like that. Jesus, who was the lion, suffered like a lamb. He was rejected. He was called down. He ultimately went to the cross and died in our place for our sins. And we are called to live lives like that, that we are to suffer for Christ. If you become a Christian and someone told you that everything's going to be good and everything's going to go well and you know, you're always going to have a good job and a house and everyone's going to love you, you've been lied to. Those things may well happen, good if they do, but actually the, the tone of the New Testament is a lot more the other way. I've just been reading through the Gospel of Matthew in my own time. Matthew chapter 10 is Jesus' second block of teaching in the book of Matthew after the Sermon on the Mount, which comes before it, and it makes some pretty tough reading. Jesus says things like that. If they've treated the master badly, they're going to treat the servants badly. And who's the master? Jesus, he's the master. We're the servants. If I have suffered, you are going to suffer. He says the gospel is going to bring division. It will set families against each other. If you've been born again, you've been brought into another kingdom and other parts of your family haven't, it will naturally cause tension as light and dark hit each other. Different worldviews, different values hit each other. People will speak evil about you. People will tear you down, lie to you, may even physically abuse you, may even lose your life, Jesus says. And as believers or followers of Jesus, we are to expect that. That is normal for the way of life. What we're living here in a kind of more closeted Western Christianity is abnormal if you consider Christianity around the world and how people suffer. It doesn't mean we need to go out way with a martyr complex, but actually when it does happen, and it will come, we are not to be surprised. The Apostle Peter even said it explicitly. Here's a great one to put on Facebook or you know, maybe put on a tea towel. It says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening. When you're in the face of trial and opposition, and people are speaking evil about you, you're being victimized. Not if you're being a moron, by the way. If you're being rude and insensitive and an idiot, you deserve it. Change. But... If you are loving people and caring for people and trying to be the best work you can and the best, you know, whatever your position is, parent, and you are facing opposition for that and people are speaking evil, then we are not to be surprised. We are not to be surprised at the opposition because the enemy hates you. He hates that you're part of another kingdom. He wants to do anything he can to destroy you and wreck your faith. But that is what is coming. But the good news is, we looked at lastly, what is it? We have a lion with us who will speak for us. And whether it happens in this life or the next life, we will ultimately be vindicated for serving Jesus. But in the meantime, we are to be meek like lambs and suffer as Christ did when these difficulties come our way. The last one, remember. We are to remember. Before Jesus went back to heaven, he gave two things to his church that they are to do. Two things, two ordinances sometimes people call them. Two ordinances to his church. The first one, one-off, single event, get baptized. There was no ifs and buts about that. If you're a believer, you get baptized. Simple as that. We're doing one next week. Isn't the timing amazing? It's like we planned it. If you haven't been baptized, we'd love to talk to you so we can baptize you next week. Once you've done that, you're done. Pfft. Mine was the 17th of November, 1997. You've done it. That's it. Never have to get baptized again. The other thing he gave us was the bread and the wine. 
that we are to do regularly in remembrance of him. Our way as a church, our way way of doing it is we do it in life groups because it's around a meal table, which is how Jesus did it with his disciples. That's why we do it. So we tell our life group leaders, every time you meet, we meet two weeks life groups, third week prayer meeting. This week is the third week, so it's the prayer meeting, then we're back on with life groups. On those meetings, you always eat, chat, and pray. So we share a meal together, we talk about the most important thing in the world, which is our relationship with Jesus, then we pray. As part of that, share the bread and the wine. I would be happy if life groups leaders did it every time you met. Just do it in remembrance of me. Jesus even said that. Do this in remembrance of me. And that's what we're to do. We're to do it remember it. And it's become part of our lifestyle. We sometimes do it here on a Sunday if the occasion kind of works out. Just do that. And so that's what we're going to do today. But we are to be a remembering people. As you gather together in groups, big groups, small groups, we are to remember Jesus. And our primary way of doing that is through the bread and the wine. That's what he gave us to do. And we keep doing that. And Jesus says you're to do that till when? He comes to cack. Is he back? No. So we keep doing it. So we make this part of our lifestyle, part of who we are. You've got the bread which represents his body. It was broken. That's how we like to break the bread, rip it. That's a reminder of Christ's great sacrifice on the cross, of what he went through for us. We serve the wine, red wine. Why? Because that reminds us of the blood that was shed. It even said that in the passage, didn't it? It was his blood that was shed, that ransomed men for God. That's how we were born out of slavery, because Christ's blood was shed on the cross. We have a non-alcoholic option as well, uh, for those who prefer that. I think wine is vile stuff, so I'm going to go for the non-alcoholic stuff. Uh, But that's there for you as well. We also have some gluten-free bread um, as well, for those who would prefer that. Do you want to stand up, and we're going to work out how we do this. Do the band just want to come up for me? Okay, I'm just going to start by praying because that's always a good place to start. So maybe you just want to close your eyes. When we come to this, it's a, it's a serious moment. It shouldn't necessarily be solemn, but it needs to be serious. We need to think about it. If you're not a believer here, you're not a follower of Jesus we ask you not to get involved. The reason being is the best illustration I think of is my wedding ring. To you, it's just a piece of metal. It's not even worth that much money. So it's just a, it's just a piece of metal. If you took it, you, you, might, you might get a few quid for it. But to me, it represents everything. It represents 17 years of marriage. It's huge. It's a symbol to me, and that's why I wear it every day. This is just bread and just wine. But to you, if you're a believer, this means everything of a life given for you that you might go free. And not just any life, the life of God the Son. So it's huge. So if you're a believer, even if you're not part of this church, but you're a follower of Jesus, we welcome you. Come join with us. We love having you here. If you're not, we ask you just to let it go. There's no shame with that. Just let it pass and we're fine with that. But I'm just going to pray. It's a serious moment. And if you know there are things in your life you need to just get dealt with, get right with God, just moments we thought, I haven't put that right with you, I haven't sought forgiveness, you do that now. God's grace is freely available. You don't have to kind of wait a certain number of time or do a certain number of things. You can just take it now. Repent, turn around, say sorry, ask for his forgiveness. 
Remember those who didn't stick their hand up for singing the shower. This is your moment. Just get right with Jesus.